Good morning, everyone, and good morning to all those online with Bethany. Um, as Kendi said, it's a real privilege uh, for me to be here today. I'm usually sitting, usually about over there, and so I've freed up some space, so that's great this morning. Um, this is indeed the Advent season of preparation. It's a season of waiting, as we're going to talk about this morning, and, and kind of how God is preparing our hearts and our minds uh, to hear what God has in store and experience that as well. One of the things that we find during this season is it's a time usually of endings and times of beginnings. It's a season when we start getting our top 10 lists of the year. People start getting to that point of ending the year. You have the culmination of what 2017 has been. I know for myself, this is very real um, as somebody who just finished teaching classes for fall term. So I have many students who got to be the end of our class season and are now moving into that wonderful time of the year called finals week. Uh, so um, there is light and darkness ahead for college students <laughs> as well. Um, one of the things that's certainly a part of this season, and I think part of our culture right now is, and this is the roadmap I want to take us through this morning as we get to look at Simeon in a bit, is where is our heart now as we sit in the end of 2017? What is that place that God has us and shaped us? What wounds do we bring into this end of the year? And one of the things I want to talk about in the beginning is this idea of soul weariness and, and then also what resources we have to deal with the weariness in our soul as faithful believers moving into the Christmas season. And that's a little bit of the roadmap I'd like to take us as we look at Isaiah and as we look at Simeon this morning. Well, I have a colleague, uh, Daniel Taylor, who taught for many years at Bethel University, and he and I talk a lot about um, college students quite a bit, and he had this wonderful phrase that he's used quite a bit about kind of where we've moved to as a culture in the 21st century. And, and he talks a lot about how we are experiencing a season of what he calls soul weariness. And so, and he calls it kind of a symptom of the age. And in your bulletins, I have some bullet points there to walk you through. And as I test this out, um, in your mind say, is this something that you're experiencing, something you're thinking about? Soul weariness, he defines as the condition that results from being hyper-reflective about something of great value, but no definite way of coming to a conclusion about it or no requirement to do so. It is that spinning wheel that we see sometimes on our computer when we're waiting for it to boot up and it's stuck. It's that constant moving forward of things but never getting to a conclusion. It's the push, push, and push of our accelerated culture where we're pulled five different directions and no single path seems to be there. We hear Isaiah talking about making a way for the Lord, but when we try to get on that way, we feel like we have 15,000 off-ramps that are distracting us from that way. It's that sense of this pacing back and forth in our heart, in our soul, in our mind, um, rather than making a decision to move forward on things in our life. It's, it's the reticence of making a decision or moving forward as well. All of these come together and result in a sense of weariness in our souls. And we see evidence of it in so many ways, so many painful ways. Just recently, a new published study looking at young people found that clinical diagnosis of anxiety has eclipsed depression and is now the number one indicator of therapeutic movements for young people in our culture, this move of anxiety. Where depression is often seen as the deep hole we fall into when all options seem to have ended, Anxiety, this chronic anxiety, is an inability to deal with the 
endless inputs that we have that constantly besiege us all the time and no possible way to sort through how we even make a response. We have this constant pressure from peers, parents, our culture, news cycles bombarding us 24-7. What one theorist talks about is our tethered self. We always have that smartphone on us tethered to the world that never even shuts off, even when we put on do not disturb functions on there. That exhaustion we feel about curating, that constant curating of a personality on social media where everybody seems to be going to a great concert Everybody is surrounded by beautiful friends. Everybody's eating avocado toast. And it seems like everything is like a cheerful after picture of a six-week perfected diet. And we find ourselves in the before picture, not with beautiful friends, and certainly not at a great concert. Now, the soul weariness that kind of burdens us and burdens people today, that beats us down and leaves us exhausted with all the options but no way forward, no path forward as Isaiah talks about, is really a symptom of an age old disease we find in scripture which is simply fear. That we give ourselves over to fear. And all of creation seems to swing back and forth between moments of fear and explosions of wonder. Fear and wonder seem to be the bookends of human condition. On one level, we find ourselves in fear of ourselves, in fear of the decisions we might make, in fear of what will happen in, in regards to those decisions. But then every once in a while, there's these moments where wonder explodes on the scene, kind of casts light on the shadows of those fears and allows us to see something greater. And Isaiah, as we read today from the 40th chapter, reminds us that in a fallen world, fear is gonna flourish. It'll come up like weeds in your garden. It will suck the life out of the fruit trying to grow on the tree. It will suck the oxygen that you're trying to breathe from your very lungs. Fear is crippling. It is strong. It'll come at us from every angle. And yet scripture continues to tell us to fear not, doesn't it? Over and over we hear Fear not, fear not, fear not. Like this great echo from this voice from a long, long distance, shooting down the canyon, telling us, fear not, fear not, fear not. But it's getting smaller and smaller, and we wonder, where did this fear not ever come from? Is it so far away that the echo is diminishing into almost nothingness? As we read this passage this morning from Isaiah, we are brought into the world of Advent because as this time of the year, people will bring out Handel's Messiah often. And this great passage we read from Psalm 40 is right in the midst of the beginning of the Messiah, this idea of comfort ye my people, this great passage that Isaiah wants us to hear today, that amidst our fears and the weariness of this time, there is comfort for us from our Lord. And the shift that we get in Isaiah takes us from one Hebraic saying of Adah, which is this condemnation that there's all this hope lost and things are getting darker and darker and darker. And then it comes, and this is in the Hebrew, tada. It's this movement of consolation, which Simeon talks about, we'll get to in a minute, this way of consolation that not, no, 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 hope's not all lost. Fears are not there. These weeds growing in the garden aren't going to last. There is something more coming. There is something more coming, and a, and a light is going to shine in this darkness. In Isaiah 41, we hear this, Still, my people, says the Lord, broken and scattered though you are, 
You remain my first chosen, Jacob, Abraham, my friend. I have gathered the fragments together from the ends of the wide earth, and I say to you, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you and uphold you in my right hand of righteousness. Isaiah, as the prophet, knew we needed to hear this right here in 2017. This is God's prophecy to be brought true in our lives and in the way we live and the way we practice. Isaiah wants us to hear that fear is gonna creep in everywhere. It's gonna seep in through the pores around us. And it's gonna come at us, but we have a choice to make in the way we live to not live into the fear, but to live into another way, which is in our bulletin I've listed as the faithful believer. Because soul weariness is a choice that we can also work against, that we can push against it through some practices together as a community. And I've listed three that I think Simeon is going to help us see clearly in the way that he lives as well. To be a faithful believer in a time of soul weariness first is going to require some risk for all of us. And by risk, I mean a hunger deep within us for meaning that's going to be stronger than our fear of being wrong. A hunger for meaning and for trust and for love that has got to be greater than our fear of getting it wrong. So oftentimes we try to hedge our bets when we love. We try to hold back just a little bit so we don't have our heart broken. We don't want to be disappointed so we try to find certainty and assurance as opposed to following vision and mission and maybe purpose. Risk is gonna require stepping out and realizing that our hunger for love, our hunger for being known, our hunger for healing, means that we may risk getting it wrong. And that's gonna require something from us in that way as a being faithful believers. Secondly, we also need to be open, open to the unknown, to the unverifiable, the untestable, the mysterious, the intuited, the spiritual, as sources that God wants to use to get our attention that goes beyond the material certainty of our age. That we need to be open to the possibility that what God has in store is something we've never seen before, that we've never thought of before, that we can't wrap our hands entirely around, but maybe something bigger that we can get our minds around. That we need to be open to the possibility that God has something in store for us to heal our souls, to bring us back, that maybe we haven't thought of. And third, to be faithful believers means that we have to do this with companions. We need to love companions along the way. We need to find soul friends for the journey. We need to be kindred spirits with one another. And this is why the church is so important, that we need each other. When we stood and we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, in that minor key that brings us to a sense of, do we really think it's gonna happen? There's that moment when you heard each other singing and you realized you weren't singing solos, but we as a church were singing together. And in that moment when we can hear each other sing, we can take a minor key and make it into a major proclamation as a church that we are proclaiming together that we have people for the journey, companions, that as Bethany, we can walk together into a world of soul weariness and practice not foolhardiness, not fantasy, not whimsy, but broken-hearted movement into love as a community and people of God. Now, hundreds of years after Isaiah challenged us in this way, 
The people of God in the first century are called together as we hear for the greatest census of all time. This calling together of all the people under the Caesars to get their names put on record. And famously, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem under the Caesars with fear as the waters that everybody was drinking. A place of empire and power and suppression of freedoms. But God is going to bring into this story as we hear light, shalom, hope, through the veil of darkness and through this fear as we hear in Luke's gospel where Mary is told, fear not Mary for I have found favor with you. Unto you a child is going to be born. And this is where we meet up with Simeon. Now Simeon is a really interesting character. We have all these days marked in our church calendar for various events that happen during Advent. The wise men, for example, are commissioned to go and follow and find this unknown child. They have this unknown end and they find the Christ child. And we label this time Epiphany. The sign is a surprise gift and we celebrate this in our church calendar. But there is no day like that for Simeon. We don't have a day that we lift up Simeon Day as part of what it means to be the church. And that is too bad because we look deeper at Simeon now, we'll find that many of us are living the Simeon life. We're waiting, and we're waiting. Where the wise men go off and they you know, take this grand journey to find hope and peace, Simeon stays in his zip code. He plants himself in a place that's very normal, very grounded, very local, and waits, and waits for God to do what God has in store. Think of how challenging that is for us, how easy it is for us to think, you know, I think... The answers to all my problems are on a Viking river cruise on the Danube, right? Or maybe if I can just kind of go scale in Machu, Machu Picchu, and then I'll get that picture, and that'll be it, right? Or I can go these grand journeys, these grand pilgrimages, go to that place, move that house, change that job, and then meaning will appear. But for Simeon, Simeon is saying to us, maybe God wants to show up right here in the mundane reality of your life, to wait and to find. So Simeon brings us to this point of waiting, challenges us to wait, and it's a story that is so apt for an instant gratification era, where we want things fast, we want things quick, we want to change our lives now, we want to buy the miracle cure, the miracle cream, the 30 second change, the six month, no, I think six second cleanse, um, you know, to get us to where we need to go. And Simeon is telling us a different story. So what do we learn from Simeon on this? Well, first, Simeon is challenging us at Advent that we have to have an inward character of waiting when we wait for the Lord. This inward character is built around the statement that we hear in the scripture of Simeon being both devout and righteous. Devout and righteous. To be devout is not merely just to attend worship services on Sunday. To be devout is to live a life of worship every day of the week. To be devout is this act of life that we live with God through word and deed, so we live out our righteousness before all people. It is both and. To be righteous is to have that steady presence with God's grace and to see it through our lives. And to be devout is to actively do it with other people in the world. It is a transformed life. It is an eyes fixed on what the Lord has in store for us. It is choosing the moral and virtuous and gospel truths that we know and put flesh on them for others to see. 
And Simeon is doing both of those before the world. But then secondly, he doesn't do it in a private way. He takes it public. Because what we hear about Simeon does as well is Simeon has a public faith. As we, if you were to approach the temple in first century Jerusalem, you'd have to go through what we hear as what are called the temple courts. Now the temple courts are an in-between space where you come out of the world that you're working in, your place in the marketplace, your place of family, all these things that you do outside. And then you come through this middle space and move into the Holy of Holies for worship. It is the street that we look out and we look through the window here in the sanctuary of the hustle and bustle of people going on with their day and the private worship that people have of God. Simeon breaks down those barriers when he lifts up and proclaims the name of the Lord in his arms. He says there is no public and private when it comes to our faith, that we need to move into a public faith, that the words that we sing here need to be sung in the streets, that the gospel that we proclaim here needs to be proclaimed in our workplaces, in our homes, and in the marketplaces of this land. That for Simeon, there's no either or when it comes to his faith. It is what he lives out publicly. And this will strengthen us. This will challenge us to live public lives of faith. Maybe this Advent is the time where you need to be public about Emmanuel in your life. Maybe this is the season where your coworkers see you in a new way, being public about what you believe and what you strive to become. Maybe this is the season of public declaration to your family about how deep this faith means to you. And lastly, one of the things that's essential about Simeon is his arms are open to receive the mystery of love. He allows himself to be open to what God has in store. He opens his arms up to receive whatever God has, this risk of not knowing what's gonna come, this idea of openness to receiving a mystery that he has not even thought of before. And the Lord appears to him and comes to him and he holds Emmanuel in his arms. Yet Simeon acknowledges in verse 34 of our passage today that there are gonna be many who speak against this. The testimony you give to God in your heart, there will be some who will speak against that truth, who will challenge you on it who will not say that it's real, that it hasn't really changed, it hasn't really done anything. And Emmanuel, says, Emmanuel in our hearts and living through us as Simeon shows us means that we need to kind of live it out in a way that is just real for people to see. And it may be words, it may be actions, but it's gonna require us to do this together. But one of the things it will require for us is we're gonna have to draw closer to the Lord in such a way than probably we ever have before. And it will change us in doing so. So I wanna set all this in the context of a Christmas story for you. And it's a Christmas story of openness to mystery. It's a story of companions for the journey. It's a story of weariness that finds its hope in the hope of Christ in a new way. One of my earliest memories of coming to grips with something more going on in this world was when I was six years old. I was born in Hawaii, and I lived in Honolulu and Guam uh, until I was six years old, and then I moved with my family rather suddenly, actually, in the early 1970s to Seattle. Now, my entire life up to this point had been 80-degree temperatures, mango trees in my backyard, crashing surf, and I landed at SeaTac in December, one of the coldest, snowiest times in Seattle history up to that point. 
And within two days of my new life in the Pacific Northwest, I was in Children's Hospital with pneumonia. Thanks, Pacific Northwest. Um, and, and I had fevers, and it was stabilizing. And as my family had moved here, we were living in my grandparents' basement as we were getting settled in Ravenna. And I slept on this hideaway bed that was shoved into the basement. There was one small window down there. And my memories of those days recovering from pneumonia in this dark basement were confusing and lonely. I didn't know why we moved. I didn't understand why we couldn't go back to a place that was actually warm. And there was mangoes and there were friends. And I'm laying in this hide-a-bed in a basement cold and shivering. And what made matters worse for me is that my grandfather was not a talkative guy. He was a self-made man, child of immigrants. Uh, my grandfather pushed through the Great Depression by a sheer act of will, real strong work ethic, vigorously working hard to earn a pharmacy degree at that time and running Cuse Pharmacy up on Capitol Hill for decades. He was a no-nonsense kind of guy. He watched television, he only watched football on TV and read his newspaper in his den in quiet, and that's how he liked it. Now, looking back, I understand that he was probably as confused as I was about what had now happened to his life. I was a sickly six-year-old in his basement wearing Aloha shirts and flip-flops. I was like some kind of intruder in his world, I felt like, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to make too much noise. I was coughing all the time, and I could tell that he was just trying to read his paper in quiet. Well, then one evening after dinner, my grandfather said he wanted to take me downtown and show me something. And I was on my feet again, but I was still pretty tired, still pretty feverish. Um, and so he said, no, we're going to go out. So we clambered into his oversized sedan. This was before gas rationing really took a hold, so there were a lot of big cars. And we drove down to see the Christmas lights of Seattle in downtown Seattle. Now, at this time in the early 70s, the big show in downtown Seattle was Frederick and Nelson. And this kind of dates me and dates a lot of you in this room, probably. Frederick and Nelson was of a certain vintage of Seattle at that time. It was the ultimate department store to go down to. This post-World War era store that was famous for frango mints, for big Christmas displays, and some even argue that it was the first department store that ever had a storefront window where you could get your child's picture taken with Santa Claus. And it was kind of you know, copied by a lot of stores later. And to this day, all I can remember about that drive downtown was how quiet my grandfather was. He just sat there driving, didn't say much, and just, I kind of looked out the window at the sleet and the slush and the gross gray of the streets, and just really didn't know what I was looking for. I was just tired. I was weary. And it just all felt gray. So we parked our car in downtown and we sludged through the slush and the cold of the city and came up to Frederick and Nelson in downtown Seattle. And I stood there in the half reflection of this big store window and I saw a world unlike anything I'd ever seen before at six years old. It was a village covered in snow with small cottages on the hillsides and little flickering fireplaces. There were miniature shops and a school and a church and trees and everything was evergreen. It wasn't gray. And lacing all around this were railroad tracks all over the place and multiple trains and whistles blowing and smoke. Um, and it was just glowing in this wondrous light. And on the glass of the big window which you see if you go to other department stores, they still do this to this day. There were handprints 
on the window, little circles of hand, little outlines of handprints. And people were pressing their hands on the glass. And as they pressed their hand on the glass, trains would move all over the place and kind of go zipping around the tracks and whistles would go. And my grandfather pressed me through the crowd, kind of got me through there, got me to the front of the window and just said, go ahead, try it. So I stepped up and I pressed my hand against the glass and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened. And again I tried and I pushed harder and nothing moved. And it was like what it was like to come to this city. It was like what it was to be in this basement. It was like sitting in this hide-a-bed. It was dark. Nothing happened. And then my grandfather said, Jeffrey, take off your gloves. So I had these old gloves that were my uncle's gloves. They had been left in a box, and they were, that's why I was wearing these hand-me-down gloves, and I pulled them off my hands. And I took my bare, exposed hand, and I pressed it against the glass. And that cold glass just exploded as it kind of famed all this fog just kind of appeared from the heat of my hand. And the cold and the heat came together, and a train exploded into motion, and lights started flickering. And there was smoke coming out of things. And just like that, everything was alive. Color and light and motion. And I was looking at that half reflection and thinking about it and I looked up and my grandfather was watching the trains chugging away. And my memories of him are always having, he's always having this half look, like he was always looking at the horizon in his life. Always waiting for something else to happen. He worked his tail off to get where he got. He worked hard. He didn't have space for anything other than work. But there was always a look in his eye where he was waiting for something to come up over the horizon, something to surprise him. And in that look on his face, it was like a little bit of what he hoped for. Because there was something he wanted to share with me. It was, he didn't know how to say it. He was of, an, of a generation of an age he didn't know how to tell me that there was other things in this life worth living for. There were other things going on that we didn't necessarily control or even know about. And to see the wonder on my face, I think was just something about this is what I've been working for. And so he showed me by taking off my gloves, by touching and getting intimate with this, that all the work and all the striving and all the things we do matter little if we're not willing to risk, reach out, and with intimacy, touch what we're hoping for in this life. And then, just like that, he said, time to go. <laughs> and we got into the car. Now, a few years later, on my ninth birthday, my grandfather gave me a model train set for Christmas. It was the only gift he gave me. He wrapped it himself and he gave it to me. And it's still with us to this day. It's wrapped in Seattle Times newspaper from 1974. The transformer that powers the train shorts out every now and then, it's a bit, pretty much a fire hazard. Um, but that train and that moment reminds me that there is this looking that everybody seems to have in different ways. And my grandfather had it in one way. Always looking around to see, is this the moment it's gonna happen? Is there something that's gonna break through all of this fear, all of this exhaustion, all of this weariness, and show us this is what life is? 
This is what it's like. This is the excitement and the wonder and the color and the power and the redemption and the healing. Is this the time? And Simeon shows us with open arms when you're ready to receive it. And when it comes, it's real. And it comes in love. And we can't touch love with the gloves on. We can't touch love with the gloves on. In order for us to experience everything Emmanuel means in this Advent season, we are going to have to risk intimacy and take off the gloves. We're going to have to remove the protection we've built up over the years of our soul weariness and our brokenheartedness and our woundedness and reach out and touch wonder. Sure, we can press our hands against the glass over and over and over again and make all the effort in the world. But unless we are willing to take the gloves off and risk being touched by love, we will not love fully. So this Advent season, my challenge for us as a church is to take the gloves off this season, to be like Simeon and open our arms to receive what God has in store for us, to risk boldly beyond our need to be getting it right, risk even being wrong in loving enough to risk again, to be journey people together, to be soul friends together for this journey as we go through Advent in this season and love boldly enough to take each other to find places where we can show them that wonder is still alive and for us to this day. Will you pray with me as we get ready to approach the table and take what God has in store for us this morning? Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the gift of your son, for this season of Advent that declares the hope and the consolation of the world is with us indeed. Lord, prepare our hearts that have been broken and weary to be strengthened by your spirit, to reach out and to touch the wonder that you call us to this Christmas season. May you equip our souls to receive what you have in store for us. Oh, come, Emmanuel, come again and let us receive it, we ask. Prepare our hearts now to take this meal. It is your name we pray, amen. On the night in which our Savior was betrayed, he gathered his friends in the upper room and he took the bread, the common bread of the day, and he broke it for them. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take this and eat. In a similar manner, he lifted the cup and he said, this is the cup, the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the remission of sin. As you gather together, eat and drink and do this in remembrance of me. This meal is open for those of you who declare Jesus Christ as your Lord. This is Emmanuel who has come to show you and make a way for your life. You are invited to take the bread as it's passed to you by the servers. Please take it in your time as your declaration of your faith privately with the Lord. And then as the cup comes, please hold it and we'll take this together as our, as our statement of companions for the journey as we bind our hearts together for this Advent season. So let us now partake of the meal together.